Sunday to say that. This is a good one. Is the good is Danny? I, I just want you to know everyone is welcome at Trinity, and we have a regular flow of visitors to come, and we're glad for that. And whether you're stopping in to visit for a short time, a long time, if you're live streaming, you're welcome here. And and I want you to know that regardless of what you believe, you're welcome. And there will be people who aren't really sure they're Christians. They don't know what they think about the Bible. And you've decided for whatever reason you'd like to come to church and hear the Bible preached. And you're still thinking through a lot of things. You might hear me say things you don't agree with. Just so you know, my response is, I'm glad you're here. And if I could be of help to you, let me know. If, if you come, you listen to messages, and you, you're, you're thinking, Greg, I would enjoy an opportunity to sit down and talk to you like about a passage or whatever, uh, there's an email address on the back of your bulletin. Shoot an email to the office. They'll get it to me. If you say, I want to talk to somebody, but not you, we'll set you up with someone else. Ladies with ladies. Yeah, I know. You might, yeah, couples with couples. We, we want to be of help to you. So I don't want anyone to assume that, you know, like to come and worship the Trinity, that you have to like buy in all the way. I just want you to know that no matter what you believe, you're welcome here. And I trust that God's word will work in all of our lives. And I believe he does work through the word. And the passage today is going to make that very clear. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's word is able to work and bring us to the place we need to be. So today we're in Hebrews. I want to begin, we'll be at chapter 4 if you want to open up. I want to begin with an introduction uh, just to, to kind of get us thinking. And it has to do with AAA. Just real quick review. AAA, the American Automobile Association. I remember my mom and dad used to be members. And they'd have that little, some of us old people remember, kind of like an oval sticker on the bumper of the car. And the idea was if you break down or whatever, you give them a call. And at no cost, you know, they send out a tow truck or someone to help you as long as you're a member of AAA. Let's pretend, by way of introduction, that you're driving your vehicle to a vacation spot. Let's call it the city of rest, okay? You want to get to rest. And you're driving on a dark road. It's late at night. You've been driving all day. There's no one around. And you have car trouble. And you're on the side of the road, and you have no idea where you're at. It can't be your GPS, okay? But you're not sure what to do. And then you remember, AAA. And, you know, you look, your phone has a good charge. You check, you got a, you got a tower not too far away. Hey, Siri, right? AAA emergency assistance. Please call. And a very nice-sounding woman answers, Hello, AAA, emergency response, may I help you? Ma'am, yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere, and my car broke down, and I really need some help. We are glad, says the voice, to help you. Could you please give me your AAA number? <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, you know, yeah, um, you know, sir, are you a member of AAA? Well, you know, like my parents used to be, and, you know, sir, do you have their AAA number? We do it by families. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, sir, are you a member of AAA? Well, you know, I never quit, okay? I never, like, sent in a resignation letter. <laughs> sir, thank you for sharing that. Uh, sir... Do, are you a member of AAA? Do you have a number? Well, you know, when I was in college, I used to be a member of AAA. Well, thank you, sir. Do, are you currently a member of Well, I, I never quit. But you know, life got busy, and we had a couple kids, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, I guess I maybe just kind of like, you know, maybe... Let my membership lapse. And the woman says, thank you for calling. I encourage you to contact a local garage and get help. And you go, no, 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 wait, wait, don't hang up. 
I used to be a member of AAA. And she says, you know, I believe you. Thank you for calling. And, and you say, you mean you're not sending a tow truck out? We do that all of the time for those that are members of AAA. You say, but I used to be a member. And she says, thank you. I would be glad to send you to new membership. They open at 8 in the morning, okay? But you can leave a message. Now, in all seriousness, I don't know exactly how they would deal with that. But guys, I hope you get the point. AAA doesn't send out tow trucks to get you to your destination because you once joined AAA. Because you used to be a member. And I'm going to make that application. This is what we're being confronted with here in Hebrews. AAA provides roadside assistance if you are a member and Jesus Christ saves you from your sin if you are a believer. And no one's going to leave this life and get to the pearly gate, quote unquote. And somebody says, hey, you, you're coming to heaven? And you would say, yeah, I used to believe in Jesus. And, and, and this is the phrase, once saved, always saved, right? Once a member of AAA, always a member. And people have already asked me this, and it'll continue. Greg, do you believe people can lose their salvation? And my answer is, I got a better question. Do you believe you can go to heaven without Jesus? That's what I want to know. Because the world is filled with people who think they're going to go to heaven without Jesus. Because in the past they went to church, in the past they read their Bibles, in the past they got baptized, and in the past they said, you know, I'm a Christian, and I, like, I never wrote a letter that said I'm not. Can you go to heaven without Jesus? And I would argue the answer is clearly, no one goes to heaven without Jesus. And you say, okay then, so are you suggesting you could lose your salvation? I personally don't believe you can, but let me quickly say, I am convinced based on the Bible, you can't go to heaven without Jesus. So we have in Hebrews texts like this, chapter three, verse six, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. It doesn't say if once upon a time in the past we prayed a prayer, made a decision. That is not what the text says. You say, Greg, that's like one verse in Hebrews. How about another one? Chapter 3, 14. We have become partakers of Christ. Isn't that awesome? To be able to say, I'm a sharer with Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You say, what if a person doesn't go through life persevering in his faith? Then he's not a partaker of Christ. That's what Hebrews says. These warnings are real. That's why we've already covered, these are all verses we've covered, 2-1 Hebrews. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. It's not assuming that a person will necessarily say, okay, you know, starting today, I'm no longer a Christian. It is assuming that there are people who will identify, they will profess, I am a Christian, and over time, they just drift away. And where are they? I don't know where they are, but they're not reading their Bible, they're not praying, they're not in church worshiping Christ, they're not sharing their faith, they're not seeking to grow, they're not thinking anything anymore about Christ. And like a boat just going down river, they drifted. How about Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that failed, that falls away from the living God. And, and see, we, we all get caught up with, wow, can you fall away? Then maybe you can lose your salvation. I, I just want to ask you right now today, 
Are you a person that has a believing heart and you're actively following Jesus? This verse says we need to be cautious that we would not fall away from that. How about chapter 4, verse 1? This is the first verse we began with last week. Therefore, let us fear. If while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And then we ended last week with chapter 4, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example, the same example of disobedience. So what, and I'm only covering the verses we've already covered. I'm not going beyond chapter 4. I could. These are serious texts you need to wrestle with. You say, okay, Greg, so like, can we really know if a person's a Christian? Well, you know, it's, it's always good to take people at face value. It's a loving thing. And if somebody would confess to know Jesus, then you hopefully hope for the best, and you hope they're a Christian. You say, can you really know? It's challenging. People say things. What's going on inside is difficult to know. You might be thinking, hey, forget about others. How about me? Can I know that I am really a, a Christian? That's a tough question. Because I know of people who used to tell me they knew that they were, but today they'll tell you they're not. So it's obviously possible for people to profess with confidence, I know that I'm a Christian, and time goes on, and they will profess with confidence, I don't believe in Jesus. Now again, if you want to say they're fine, they can go to heaven, then you believe you can get to heaven without Jesus. I do not believe the Bible supports that at all. You say, then can anyone know? Well, one thing for sure, God knows. God knows. Because God knows my heart. God knows your heart. You say, can I even know my heart? I believe God will show you his heart. Excuse me, I believe God will show you your heart. I believe the word of God is so powerful that it will reveal what is true in your heart, and God's word is able to show you. And here's the thesis of today's message. God's word is able to reveal if you are headed for rest or wrath. And there's only two options. So we have this text today in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, and it's all about the Bible. And it's like, well, wait a second. Why all of a sudden is Hebrews telling us about the Bible? Because it's the Bible that is able to show all of us what's going on inside of us. And there's only two places. We're either headed for rest or we're headed for God's wrath. So the title of today's message is God's Word and Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Let me read those two verses. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I want to focus on this verse. I've preached on this verse before, but never in the context of Hebrews. This is a great standalone text. If you want a great text on the power of God's word, here it is. But I want to do my best to cover that in the context of Hebrews, because in context, what's going on here is this verse will reveal to you what's really in your heart. It'll help you to know if you're really a follower of Jesus, and if you're truly headed for rest rather than God's wrath. You say, what do you see in this verse? We're going to do three things. Number one, let's look at the character. We're going to go slow. Word at a time. I'll try to keep it moving. We're going to look at key words about the character of God's word, starting here in verse 12. 
Let's start with verse 12. Right Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God. Let's just stop right there. What do we know about the word of God? It's divine. Notice it's not just the word. It is the word of God. What does that mean? If you know some of you that enjoy reading, it's what's called the subjective genitive. It's not a word that talks about God, it's the word that God speaks in this context. It is the word that God proclaims. And I'm taking that from the context because all in this section is a lengthy quote from Psalm 95. And in Hebrews, how is that quote introduced back in Hebrews 3:7? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We could come to that and go, now, wait, wait a second. That's, that was Psalm 95. Why does the Bible say it's the Holy Spirit? Because God's word is spoken by God. We know that the Bible is actually breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. The NASB says, and again, this is interesting to me because when I read the English word inspired, I'm always thinking in breathed in. It's not what the Greek word means. It means breathed out. The scripture was breathed out by God. It's how Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It's not the word of a man. It's not the word of a bishop. It's not the word of a pastor like me. It's not the word of a pope. It's not the word of a group of men, a bunch of elders, a, de a denominational synod of any type. It is the word of God. God speaks forth his word. Which is why I love going back to Jeremiah and thinking of chapter 3, verse 28. I'll just real quick on the context. Jeremiah is speaking the word of God and people won't believe it. False prophets are telling about their dreams. In that context, Jeremiah 23, 28. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord. And if I could paraphrase that incredibly loosely, and again, you've got to go back and check context. This is what Jeremiah is saying. God speaking through Jeremiah. The prophet who has a stupid dream may relate his stupid dream. But if you know my word, speak my word. What does straw have in common with grain? Your stupid dream is like straw. It's worth nothing. But God's word is grain. It's valuable. It's what we need. It's what he speaks. The very next verse in Jeremiah 23 is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. We want to be careful that we are people who understand that God's word is divine. When, when we come together, I'm opening up my Bible. I am speaking God's word. It's the word that God himself spoke. It's not only divine. Notice what comes next in our text, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living. It's alive. It is the word of the living God. Greek's not like English. We're pretty uh, structured in English how we do our words. In Greek, there's a whole lot of freedom. You know, you can kind of put a verb where you want. You can kind of put a, a subject or a predicate where you want. And sometimes you stick a word at the very front because you want everybody to focus on it. If you were reading your Greek Testament on Hebrews 4.12, you would notice the first word is living. This is a word that's key. If I read it literally, it would be something like living for the word of God. It's yeah, something like that. It's a book that is alive because it's the word of the living God, right? What's Hebrews 3, 12? Take care, brother, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And if he's a living God, then his word is a living word. See, we live in a world where there's many great documents, right? I could ask you, you know, are you into literature? And some of you are, and again, I have a daughter that's an English teacher. If I said, give me great literature, you might say, you know, the plays of Shakespeare. 
And I would say, okay, great. What would you consider a great novel? Some of you might say, the works of Dickens. And I, and I would probably agree with you. Some of you are maybe more into politics. And I would say, what's a great political document? You might say, the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution. Those are dead documents because they were written by people who died a long time ago. The Bible is the word of God. God is alive today. His word is a living word. That's why even today, the Bible continues to be the most widely sold book in the world. It continues to be the most popularly read book, even today, yes, in the whole world. Because it's divine, because it's alive. You say, alive, Greg, what does it do? Oh, it's powerful. And that's our third word. The Bible is what? Verse 12. It is the word of God. It means it's divine. It's living. It's the word of the living God. And in our English, we have the word active. And the word active, we get our English word energy from it. And it's the idea that God's word is powerful. It is powerful enough to do what God wants it to do. And, and that's something that the Bible attests to in many places. How about Isaiah 55, 10? As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it fair and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Okay, so we got that. The rain comes and it's able to help that plant grow. Verse 11 so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word has the power to do what his word needs to do in the lives of people. So when Paul was writing to believers in Thessalonica, chapter 2, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, it was through the word of God. And if it's not through the word of God, then you're not a Christian. Because somehow, some way, somebody shared the word of God with you. And God worked through that word like he worked in the lives of the Thessalonians. And when they heard it, they didn't say, yeah, whatever. But they said, no, this is divine. This, this is a word that God has spoken out from his mouth, the living God. And it worked in their hearts. And God's word is able to do that. It has that kind of power. So we would say that God's word is what? We would say that God's word, we'll try to hit the next slide here. We would say that God's word, after 1 Thessalonians 2.13, thank you, God's word is powerful, but it's not only powerful, it's controlled power. It's cutting. Let me see if I can help. When we, when we talk about the word, thanks for the help in the back, when we, think, when we think about the word powerful, don't think tsunami power. You know, don't think earthquake out in the ocean and all of a sudden there's a ton of water and it wipes out everything. That's power. That's general, vague, non-specific power, if I can put it that way, indiscriminate. Think of focused power. Think of a knife that cuts in a very specific way, that's the next word or phrase. Do you see that? 412 Hebrews, the word of God, one, is living, two, active, three, sharper than any two-edged sword. Real quick, sword. Don't, don't think about a two-handed sword that you're like trying to swing in some big battle type of deal. 
Think about a knife or dagger that you could hold in one hand that you could stick in a belt. That's the word here. It's an incredibly sharp knife. Both sides. And a lot of people think of creative things to say this incredibly sharp knife, sharper than any two-edged sword, it has what? It, it, it is a knife that cuts it is a knife that's sharp on both sides, maybe like that's Old Testament and New Testament, and there's different ideas on that. I, I think I'm just going to be confident and content with it super sharp. But in the context of sharpness, we're talking about surgical sharpness. And so if I were to think of a picture, I would think of an operating room where there's a doctor, a physician, with an incredibly sharp knife who is specifically keyed in. Don't think just hacking back and forth, but think of a very sharp knife in surgery that is able to go deep into a person that is able to penetrate my very soul. That's what the Word of God is able to do. It is able to go into places that no one but you are willing to admit that even exist. Things that are so deep inside, you would never talk to anyone about them, not even your spouse. And we all have that. And God's Word reaches there. That's how deep God's word goes. You know, one of my sad thoughts is there are churches that are not preaching God's word like this. They don't believe that God's word is this powerful and people come together, even on days like today, and rather than preaching the word of God, they have a motivational speaker. Some of you are in sales, you know what motivational speeches are. I'm not against them. If you want to get fired up to go and do everything you can to increase sales, that's fine. But that can't reach deep inside of a person, not like the Word of God can. We don't want to come together for motivational speeches. We don't want religious, philosophical treatises to help people feel spiritual. We don't want relevant words of very cool and hip guys who relate to the culture and wow, he gets me, he gets me, right? If Jesus gets me, he gets me. Okay, that's not what we need. We don't need the principled words of moralistic preachers who are trying to teach you to be a good citizen. We need people who will faithfully open up God's word and preach it and let it cut. And it will cut. You say, wow, I mean, Greg, I came to Trinity today. I'm not even sure I want to be here. I get it. Because cutting's not fun. You know, we're not here to bounce a beach ball around and see whose picture's up on the screen and laugh. God's word is being preached and it cuts and it goes places that it needs to go. You know, if, if you go to a, a steakhouse, you don't want someone giving you some plastic little childproof knife, right? If you're working in your yards, and some of you are so good with your yards, when it's gardening time, you don't want to take your childproof scissors out. You want some real stainless pruners that you actually get sharpened at the end of the year and that you have to be careful about because if you just nick them, you bleed. God's word is like that, guys. God's word is divine, alive, powerful. It cuts. You say, that's a lot to think about. It's a lot to think about. And the text doesn't stop. Let's keep going. 
Not only have we seen the character of God's word, guys, let's look real quick at the word of God's word. Notice what it says here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, what's the point? Here it comes. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is piercing. It means to reach inside. It means it can go where others can't go. We are naturally, I am convinced, defensive, self-protective people. And we live bound frequently by the fear of man. And there are people, we talk about this, I think it's a common problem. Greg, I don't want people to know what I'm like. I deal with this with students. Hey, would you read? Oh man, Dr. Mazak never asked me to read. Because I might mispronounce a word. And people will think I'm not smart. And I don't want people to know that I'm not smart. Can I ask you a question about this path? No, don't ask me. Because people will know I'm not theologically educated. And I don't want them to know that. <coughs> Do you know there's people who won't go out to eat? Because they're so self-conscious, they don't know what fork to use, they don't know how to hold the cup, and they feel like everybody would look at me. We are self-conscious, protective people. And we don't want anyone to know what we struggle with. But God's word will penetrate. And God's word will go so deep in you that you look at it. You might not like what you see, but God's word penetrates and pierces on that level. Growing up, um, we had like one uncle and aunt that were kind of like closer than other family members. And they had a son, a cousin, who was my older brother's age, and they had a son, a cousin, who was my age, so that was a fit. So we kind of hung out a little bit, and we would do stuff swimming, playing around. They had a little mini bike. It was fun. And then he got a brain tumor. My cousin, my age. I was in junior high. And you know, you're in junior high. Maybe, I think maybe around that fourth, fifth, sixth grade somewhere in there. Maybe right on the edge. And my cousin has a brain tumor. You know, you're trying to wrap your thoughts around it. And he came over right before the big surgery and we were playing ping pong in the basement, and it was really awkward. He, he could play, but not like he normally could. And it was like somebody who was just out of balance. And mom kind of explained to us, uh, you may never see him again. So make sure you have fun. Be nice. And he had a brain tumor way deep in the middle of his brain. Now, again, this is going to be 50 years ago ish. And the tumor was deep and the doctor said he's going to die. We might as well try. We got nothing to lose. And so they went for it. They went deep. They went as far as they could go, knowing there was very little chance, but what did they have to lose? And no, never saw him again. Went to his funeral, but never saw him again. You say, what's wrong? The doctors didn't know how to get in there. They didn't know how to do what needed to be done. God's word gets in there. God's word goes as deep as it needs to go. And notice what the text says. It, it not only pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And people, I think, love to talk about what does it mean, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And I like to talk about that too, because then I don't have to deal with what bothers me. And what bothers me is not the relationship of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. What bothers me is what comes next. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, we don't do this because we can't do this. <coughs> I mean, who's a real believer? You hear what I say, you watch my life, 
and you still don't know what I'm thinking. And there are people that go through the Christian life and they're awesome. And one day they tell you, I never believed you. Never believed you. Mom and dad wanted me to say the prayer. I did it. They were happy. I'm glad to make them happy. I never really believed it. And we don't know. I don't know. But notice what the Bible does, guys. It's able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. I don't know what you're thinking, but what I do know is what you're thinking inside, that's the real you, Proverbs 23, 7. As he thinks within himself, so is he. And I can walk around saying, hey, how are you doing? Fine. You say, fine, praise the Lord. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, praise the Lord for me too, right? How was your day? And I say, good. You say, hey, thank the Lord my day was good. And I go, oh, yeah, man, I got to get more thank, you, thank the Lord's in there, you know? Because I have to make sure people come to a conclusion that, but as you think within your heart, so are you. I can't see that. You can't see it in me. But God's word goes there. See, it goes deep. It, it, it judges. I'll, I'll, I'll leave those two words up there. Piercing, judging. We try. Sometimes we even use lie detector tests. Have you ever had a lie detector test? They, they call them polygraph tests. And I remember I was working in a motorcycle shop over to the couple and the shop was losing motorcycles. You know, you got motorcycles everywhere. And I don't know, once a month, once end of the week, I don't remember, they would do inventory. And every now and then we're missing another bike. So you're told you have to, you have to go to the lie detector test. And what if I don't? Then you're fired. And I mean, I'm not stealing bikes, so sure, whatever. And I go to the polygraph test because they're going to try to find out what's going on inside me. Uh, I was a psychology major, right? And we had recently studied how polygraph tests work. And they work by measuring, this may be changed, this is a long time ago, they, uh, if I remember right, GSR, galvanic skin response, the amount of moisture on your fingers, the amount of time it takes a current to go between two electrodes on your finger, because if you're telling a lie, you'll perspire more. And then it measures heart rate and respiration, because allegedly, if you're telling a lie, then what'll happen is it'll measure the change and they compare hot questions with baseline questions. Baseline questions, what is your name? Where were you born? Hot questions, did you steal a motorcycle? Okay. <laughs> you say, what did you do? I, I had a little fun, you know? What's your name? Greg. Where are you from? Wycliffe. And I squeezed my knees as hard as I could, but I didn't let him know. And I could tell he's a little freaked out. <laughs> and then, what are you majoring in psychology? What's your mom's name? Barb, and I squeeze my elbows. And then they ask me another baseline question. What's your favorite sport? Football, what's your favorite team? And as I'm telling him, I'm biting my tongue. And finally, he gets disgusted, stands up and says, what are you doing? And I, 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 I wish I would have said what, but I didn't. I just started laughing. And I said, I'm just having fun. Um, you know, we, we read in a book like how these work, and they said you could do this if you want to mess them up. So I, I thought I would try. And, uh, and he said, I knew you were doing something. And, and I didn't say this, but I said, if you knew, why didn't you ask? Okay, maybe. You know what the problem is? Some people, I'm told, if, if your conscience is so seared, right? If you lie all the time, you lie 24-7, then someone says, did you steal a motorcycle? You could say no, and it's just like saying, what's your favorite team? That's why these are typically not admissible in court. But God's word can deal with people in a way that the polygraph test cannot. And you say, Greg, so where does this leave me? That's our third and final point. We've looked at the character of God's word, the work of God's word. Let's look at the result of God's word. And here's where it leads us, guys. 
Verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. You say, what does that mean? It's simple. You can't hide from God. You can't. I mean, you can try. But you're wasting your time. I was listening to a sermon just this week in a Bible conference that was going on. And, and I heard it explained this way. And as soon as the gentleman explained it, my mind went right to our passage. The gentleman said that certain law enforcement agencies are based on the idea that everybody has three lives. And my ears per perked up. You have, this is what he said. You know, it's, it's what I heard him say. You have a public life. That's, that's your Facebook account for old people. Young people don't do Facebook. You, you have a public life that everybody sees, okay? Then you have a private life. And your private life is, hey, baby, don't tell anybody that, okay? You know, like I'm going maybe through a procedure or something. I don't want people to know, you know, I tend to be that way. If we're going out to eat, it's like, no, I don't, you know, you know, the idea that eating here, pick post, yeah, nothing. We have a private life, and we might disagree on that, where you want to be private, but here's where I'm going is number three. Not only is there a public life and a private life, there's a hidden life. That's the life that you hide from everyone. That's the life that you still have never told anyone about. Those are the things that you think if you told your spouse, he or her would be devastated. And we all have them. We all have it. Things inside me I would never tell anyone. God knows. God knows every one of them. Because you can't hide from God. There's no creature hidden from His sight. And it's like, wow, this is getting heavy. It doesn't stop. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is incredible. The text says all things are open. The word open means naked. Your ESV translates it naked. I didn't want to put the word naked on the screen. This is church. The word's naked. That's what it means. God's word goes so deep inside, you know what it feels like to be naked. You know, you go to the doctor and they're doing whatever they have to do. And it's embarrassing. It's like, I don't want anyone to see me like this. Come on. You know, you're, the doctor's doing whatever, and maybe the, an attendant comes in and opens the door. It's like, shut the door. That isn't hard enough. This is what the Bible does. It just leaves you completely naked. And here is God looking at you. And it doesn't even stop there. It says open, that's the word naked, and laid bare. Uh, in that Greek word for laid bare, we have the word trach, trachea, the idea of your throat, different ideas on this. Some people believe it's the idea of grabbing an animal or a person by the throat, and there's not a thing that they can do. Some people go, wow, that is like too severe. I think it just means defenseless. And, and, and that may well be it. Exposed, defenseless. You're not only naked on an operating table, you can't do a thing. 
You're under the influence of a drug. You can't even lift up a hand. You're naked and God is looking at you. And he knows everything you think. He knows what's real. And God's word goes deep. And there's nothing you can say to defend yourself. And the one who's looking at you is the one to whom you're accountable. That last phrase in verse 13, you're laid bare, wide open, defenseless, naked, to the eyes of him with whom you have. And that might be like, wow, I'm not even sure what that exactly means. The ESV puts it this way, and I think accurately, and I, I thought I had it, let me just read it. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's the idea, let me go back, it's the idea of, there we go, of a courtroom setting. And here you are, and God's the judge. And I'm wide open, and there's nothing I can do. I can't defend myself, I'm just there. And, and as I'm there, I have to give an account to God. And he sees everything. Now, here's Lady Justice, you can see that. And Lady Justice has a scale, so you're being judged. And she has a sword, and she's able to what? Punish. And I don't know if you can see it well, but some of you know this. Lady Justice is blindfolded. And that's good because the blindfold means everyone's judged the same. It doesn't mean if you're judged as like a well-to-do, financially well-off person, you're dealt with differently than a poor person. Okay, so that's good. But I just want to make the point, there's no blindfold on God. And I'm naked, I'm defenseless, there's nothing I can do, and the sword is sharp, and it's the Bible. And God's word cuts people wide open. Here's the ESV, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's God's word in the context of Hebrews. And you're thinking, Greg, I'm not sure, like I'm really a Christian? Am I one of those people that's gonna fall away? Am I real? Am I false? I don't even know. God knows. You say, but I wish I knew. You may not know for sure, but God knows. And God will show you. And he shows you by his word. It's supernatural. You can't hide. You are exposed. You are accountable. That's the result of God's work. You say, you honestly believe the Bible's that powerful? No doubt in my mind. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. I believe it because that's what the Bible says. I don't have to experience it. But I have. But my experience doesn't make it true. It's true because God says it's true. So let me just give you an illustration of what happened in my life. And my life is not normative for your life. And please, I'm not saying I know it's true because it happened. I know it's true because the Bible says it's true. But this is the verse that changed my life. Romans 6.23. I practiced this so I could get through it. The wages of sin is death. I was a sophomore in college when a guy opened up a Bible and he showed me this. And he said, Greg, what's a wage? I already know what a wage is. You go to work, you get a wage, you've earned it. He said, sin, do you know what sin is? I said, yes. He said, do you know you're a sinner? I said, yes. 
In my mind, if you don't think you're a sinner, you're not a thoughtful person, I don't know what else to do with that. Yes, I'm a sinner. Right. The wages of sin is death. You're going to have to die. I'm like, I know that. Tell me something I don't know. He said, death does not refer to eternal death. Excuse me, to regular physical death. Death does refer to eternal death because death is contrasted with eternal life. This verse says, sinners will go to hell. 19 years old, 18 years old. Cut. And I was cut. And I'm sitting in a lobby of Smith Dormitory at Ohio State, and I'm bleeding. And I'm thinking, I'm going to hell. Never, ever in my life have I thought that. And, and I've had people say, why did you believe the Bible? You know, when something cuts you, you don't think, I wonder if that knife is really sharp. I was cut. And I was honestly fearful. I'm going to hell. And the guy looks at me and says, this eternal life, do you want it? And I was like, do I want it? Yes. And you've heard this, but it, it, it happened. And he said, you want to go upstairs and we'll talk about it. No. I want to talk about it here. There's people around. When you're cut and bleeding, you don't care. I just wanted to be helped. Because I was bleeding. And he explained the free gift of God. It's eternal life. It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord Jesus Greg, that's why he came. You know what Christmas is? I did. But he explained it in a way I didn't understand. That Jesus was born to actually go to a cross. And I believed it, but I didn't really understand it. To die on a cross and pay the price of my sin. And just believing it like being a Christian, not a Muslim, Hindu, whatever. That's not enough. You have to put faith in Jesus Christ. You have to confess your sin to Jesus. You have to say, I'm a sinner and I deserve hell. And if you say, Greg, I could never say that, there's no salvation for you. There's no salvation for you. None. Unless you first realize that you're a sinner and hell is real and you deserve to go. He explained that to me. I was cut. And he said, do you want to get saved? And I said, yes. And he said, when? I said, now. He said, where? I said, here. I said, let's go. And we drop, and you don't have to get on your knees. We dropped to our knees at this little sofa thing. I'm sure the people at the foosball table, whatever, were probably looking. I don't know. I didn't care. And I cried out. Because God's word got me where I've never been gotten before. And it did a work of grace in my life. And I became a Christian. And that's the beginning of the change that I experienced. And I hope that you understand. Notice I didn't use the word experience. Because my experience doesn't have to be just like your experience. That's the only reason why I wonder if I should share yet again my testimony. You might say, Greg, yours is kind of like flamboyant a little bit. I got it. And you might say mine wasn't. It doesn't have to be flamboyant, but I mean this from the bottom of my heart. If you've never been cut, I question if you're a Christian. Amen. Have you been cut by the word of God? I'm not talking about, yeah, you know, maybe I should join the baseball team. Maybe I should play soccer. I might even join the Republican Party. Choose Democrat if you prefer. And I think I'll become a Christian. That's not cut. Cut is when you realize that you're a sinner and you deserve to be judged by a righteous God. Cut is coming to a text like Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brother, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And you come to a text like this. 
And you say, I used to have an evil, unbelieving heart. But I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe, and by his grace, I will continue to believe. That's the thesis of our message today. God's word is able to reveal if you're headed for rest or wrath. If you don't know where you're at, beloved, just open up this book and read it. And pray that God will use it. You say, where should I read? Start reading in Hebrews chapter 1. And at 4, 12, 13. And pray, God, use your word to show me what's real inside. God, God's not doing this so that he knows what's inside. He already knows. But he'll show you if you prayerfully open the book and read Hebrews chapter 4, 3 says this. We who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I sworn my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. You're headed for wrath or you're headed for rest. Those are the only two places. Those who believe enter the rest. You say, Greg, that's the whole point. I'm still struggling. Read the word. And God will show you. Let's wrap it all up tonight, this morning. Applications, real quick. Number one, there is eternal rest for believers in Jesus. Eternal rest. I invite you this morning, if you say, Greg, I don't know what's going on, but I need Jesus, come to Jesus. There is eternal rest for everyone who believes in Jesus. You say, you know, when I was three, when I was five, when I was seven, when I was ten, I'll be honest with you, forget all of that. I want to ask you a question right now today. What's the date? The 19th? Do you believe in Jesus? Deep inside. Is that your faith? If it is, praise God. There's eternal rest for you. You say, Greg, I don't think I have it. Come to Jesus. And notice I use the word turn because that's the word for repentance. Repentance is a turning. There's no salvation apart from repentance. You just don't add a little Jesus. But you turn from your sin and you open up your arms to him and say, Jesus, Please save me. I'm not worthy, but please save me. And he will. Believe God's word. Turn to Jesus. You know why? Because apart from Jesus, it's all wrath. There's no rest. There is no rest apart from Jesus. You might say, Greg, I'm struggling like intellectually with what's going on. I will explain what the Bible says, and you're gonna, I don't have time to show you where, but we've already read all three of these. If you have not put faith in Jesus, it's because of your unbelief, disobedience, and hardened heart. That's all in the text. Start at chapter 1, verse 1. Keep reading. You'll find all three. You say, you know, no, I'm just intellectual, and I don't believe you. The Bible says you have unbelief, you are actively disobedient because of a hardened heart. And you might say, you can't talk to me that way. I'm only telling you what the Bible says. It is what it teaches. You say, I don't know where I'm at. Number four, God's word exposes our true heart. If you say, I'm struggling. I, I right now don't even know if I'm a Christian. Go home, open up to Hebrews 1, and don't stop until you get to 4.12 and 13 and just pray. I believe God will show you. And finally, those who truly believe continue to believe. You say, Greg, I, I used to believe when I was a kid, but like, you know, for 20 years I didn't believe, so here am I today, what do I do? True believers persevere in their faith. You say, so did I lose my salvation? Again, you got two options. You either lost it or you never had it. That's not my issue. My issue is this. You can't go to heaven without Jesus. And if you don't believe today, you don't have him. 
It's a very much today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart kind of thing. So I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. If you know him, rejoice in him. And if you're not sure, I'll be honest with you, I'll be glad to talk with you, and I'll do the very best I can. And at the end of the conversations, we both might look at each other and say, I don't know. Because I certainly don't know. And you might say, Greg, I don't even know. And then I'd invite you just to open up the Bible and pray, God, would you go deep and show me what's real? And based on this text, I believe he will. And I believe that you can enter eternal rest. If you don't have it, I believe today you can have it. I believe that every single person listening can come to the place of eternal rest if you want to. You say, why wouldn't I want to? Because of unbelief, disobedience, and a hardened heart. That's Hebrews. That's through chapter 4 through verse 13. The invitation is always open. If you ever want to talk, I would be glad to speak with you. If you want to talk to somebody but not me, I get it. We'll get someone to talk to you. If, it, if it, another woman will do it, a couple. Guys, this is your eternal 